Anyway, it feels very good to sit together and have some stillness um, in the midst of a very busy season. I won't ask how many of you are stressed, <clears throat> but uh, stress is a word that has been translated into a lot of languages and mostly the word, and I've heard it in different languages, is just the word stress with slightly different pronunciations all around the world. <laughs> so we've exported certain things and that's uh, linguistically one of them. So I'd like to sp speak for a while this evening, another 20-25 minutes, and invite you to listen in a way that is comfortable and at ease. Not so much because there's something to take notes about, no quiz at the end, but more as a reminder, at best, a reminder of something that you already know. And if it's not, doesn't seem wise or doesn't ring true, then just discard it, let it go. When I lived uh, <coughs> uh, years ago um, in the forest monasteries in the jungles of Thailand, Burma, along the Mekong River Valley in particular, um, I, was, I was raised in the suburbs primarily in my life. And the, my family was not a big outdoor family. I think the outdoors was like the camping store at the mall or something like that. It was not yards, backyards and things. Um, and it was amazing to live in a place where we didn't have electricity for some years live there and start to notice the phases of the moon and the different colors of the light before dawn and um, the constellations change in ways that I'd never seen and smell and feel the changes of the seasons and somehow bring my life, which was quite simple in the monastery, um, into the rhythm of the natural world which we are held in all the time. But in our strange modern way, we become isolated from. Um, and it was a beautiful thing. And the teachings that I received there and that have come down for thousands of years of lineage from the time of the Buddha were how to live wisely in the natural world and in the mystery of the natural world. Because um, I remember in the at least in the mythology of it, the Buddha, it said, was born under a tree and uh, enlightened under a tree and taught under trees and died under a tree. And so he had a big connection with trees. Um, <laughs> and it's easy to kind of drive by them and take them for granted in a way. When Ajahn Chah first, we brought him to North America in the 1970s, um, he and a few other of our great, wonderful teachers from India and Thailand, Burma. Um, and I remember picking him up at Logan Airport in Boston, and um, we drove him along the Charles River and showed him this is MIT and that's Harvard, and then we got on the, on the uh, Mass Turnpike to go out to the, our center in the um, hills in the center of Massachusetts in Barrie. And we drove probably only 10 or 15 minutes through to the edge of, you know, at 60 miles an hour, whatever it was, to the edge of the the suburbs, and all of a sudden, New England, as you know, is quite forested. And he started to look, and he said, what's this? We said, well, it's trees. 
He said, trees, you know, the, the West for him was like either cowboy movies with great deserts or, you know, pictures of New York and people shooting at each other or something like that. Well, how far do these go? We said, well, from here, halfway to the Arctic Circle, probably about 5,000 miles. There's a lot of trees. He said, stop the car, stop the car. We stopped, pulled over on the freeway. He got out. He wanted to smell the trees. What kind of animals live in here? Are there bears? Are there lions? I mean, that was his life, you know. Forget Harvard and MIT. Are there bears and lions, you know? There are nine different words in Maya for the color blue in the comprehensive Perua Spanish Maya dictionary, but just three Spanish translations, leaving six butterflies that can be seen only by the Maya, and reminding us that when a language dies, six butterflies disappear from the consciousness of the earth. And so in some fundamental way, to meditate isn't to have some special meditative experience, but to come back to the mysterious experience of being alive that we take for granted. Um, Zen master Suzuki Roshi in his famous phrase said that the goal of meditation, the goal of all meditation at the end is to keep your beginner's mind. And it's such a simple thing and yet an extraordinary thing for him to say. An extraordinary, beautiful expression of the mystery of what it means to be present. That every moment is an unrepeated miracle. My friend Sharon Salzberg, who got that book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, in India after she'd been meditating for a couple of years, picked it up and said, oh, it's a book about, for, about Zen for beginners and sort of tossed it aside. Only later did she realize, no, 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 this is the advanced practice. Right. Um, it's called Beginner's Mind. Ajahn Chah also talked about it. Um, well, one Zen master I know called it Don't Know Mind. Not, this Korean Zen master, don't know. You know, what is consciousness? What is love? What is gravity? Where did you come from? How did you get in that body? What happens when you die? Um, what's going to happen tomorrow? Don't know. He say, "Oh, good. That's it. Don't know." Ajahn Chah used to use the Thai word for it was "my net." It's uncertain, isn't it? And he would say, "Relax in this uncertainty. You're not in charge." If you knew what was going to happen next, writes Margaret Atwood, if you knew in advance the consequences of your own actions, you'd be doomed. You'd be ruined. You'd be a stone. You'd never eat or drink or laugh or get out of bed in the morning. You'd never love anyone ever, ever again. You'd never dare to. <laughs> so not knowing. And then Ajahn Chah would say, of course it's hard sometimes, and not knowing is even more difficult. But he'd say, when do you learn more? When things are easy and certain or when they're difficult? When is your heart learned more? When have you become wiser? I mean, you reflect about it. What lets the spirit or the soul or the heart grow? Wendell Berry, um, beautiful poet, writes, It may be that we, when we no longer know what to do, we've come to our real work. And that when we no longer know which way to go, we've come to start our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. Mm. 
the impeded stream is the one that sings. What a poet. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. So there's this invitation to mystery that Einstein called the most beautiful and profound experience a human being can know, the sense of mystery. It is the seed of true science, wanting to understand, to see, to look anew. One to whom this emotion is a stranger who can no longer stand <clears throat> in rapt awe and wonder is as good as dead. So meditation in that way is an invitation to stop. Stop waving our arms and running around and doing so many things and just breathe and feel our bodies and sense being alive on this earth and sense what you want to do with this precious, ephemeral, tentative, uncertain, extraordinary, amazing day and life that you've been given. You know, and here we are, the darkest time of the year, which in every tradition, the Jewish tradition, they're the lights of Hanukkah, and they're the Christmas tradition, the rebirth of the light, which comes, I'm sure, from ancient Sumerian and Babylonian and goddess and, and anybody who's paying attention, basically, um, that things get dark and then the light returns. And there's something about this... Um, darkest time of the year, T.S. Eliot's phrase, the darkness shall be the light and the music the dancing. That there is some call to find the light that gets born in the midst of darkness or out of the darkness. I like to call it, in Buddhism there's a talking about emptiness and the void. It's the pregnant void. It's the fertile darkness. Um, and I know in working with people who've been abused or in prison or in war and so forth that while it's not always possible to touch it, in the right circumstances it's almost always possible to touch a seed in them of the child of the spirit that was born into them as surely it was born into everyone in this room. This inviolable place of mystery, of being, that every baby comes into this world with, no matter who they are. And that's really what the Christmas celebration is about when you go back to ancient antiquity. It's the rebirth of light, but it's really the birth of the child of the spirit and the birth into the wonder of the world. Rachel Carlson, the naturalist, writes, if I had influence with the good fairy who's supposed to preside over the birth of all children, I would ask one thing, that her gift to each child in the world would be a sense of wonder so indestructible it would last for all the years of their life. Or the bumper sticker that I read that says, Save the Earth, it's the only planet that has chocolate. Right? <laughs> but in each person, there is this, you could call it um, the secret beauty, the divine spirit, um, the seed of consciousness that's born. I mean, I don't know how you got in there, but there is something that's not just 
you're not just, as one of my teachers said, the food body. You are not simply made up of broccoli and Big Macs or whatever your particular diet is, or maybe it's, you know, brown rice and, you know, kale, or maybe it's, um, who knows what you eat. But you're not (laughs) French cheese and champagne. It doesn't matter. You're not just made of food. You're not a food being. I mean, yes, we have this hole in one end in which we stuff dead plants and animals all the time. It's true. It's bizarre. But that's not your essence. There is some other part of you that is called upon when you meditate, when you practice, to remember this mystery, this sense of spirit. And the seed in Buddhist teaching is called Buddha nature, that part that knows who we really are that knows that we're not just limited to the physical form or the changing circumstances, the part that is awareness itself. Henry David Thoreau, though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me you have a seed there and I'm prepared to expect wonders. And the seed again in the understanding of the depth of Buddhist psychology is that seed of awakening that is there in every single being. And it's such an amazing thing. Um, Yeah. I remember watching um, in the 1970s the, the arrival of this great Tibetan Lama who is known as the Karmapa, the 16th Karmapa. And went to meet him at the airport in Boston with a bunch of other people who I'd been involved with in the starting of Naropa Buddhist University. Um, And he came off the plane and he was this round, very warm-hearted, beautiful being. And he had a bunch of kids with him. These young lamas, you know, 10, 14, 17 years old. And I thought, that's nice. He's bringing, you know, some young lamas to check out what's happening in the West. It was his first visit here. And somebody, I said that to somebody in the elbow, and they said, no, 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 that's Jambagun Kompo Rinpoche, that's Tai Si that's the 11th Tai Si Rinpoche, that's the, you know, the 12th Jambagun Kompo He said, these are all his old buddies for a thousand years. They just took new bodies, but he's actually got the entire board of the corporation with him, you know. It's pretty wild, isn't it? So, I mean, that's how it works, it seems. This woman that I work with um, was on a retreat, and she'd had a really difficult life. She'd come to sit and meditate and suffered um, a lot of kinds of abuse as a child and many, many losses and um, sorrows beyond the telling, really. And to survive, she had, as we do, armored herself, protected herself, closed herself, which meant also that she couldn't really love so well. It was, she'd come on this month-long retreat, our winter retreat. And it's in, the, in March, February and March, and it started to get warmer and the flowers were blooming and things were starting to kind of open. She was doing loving-kindness practice mostly for herself over and over and over again. Um, And one day she came in, she said she'd been having a really hard time, and then she said something changed. And she reached in her coat pocket and she pulled out a hard-boiled egg that she'd gotten at breakfast. And and she said, I got this a few few days ago and I put it in my pocket. 
And I said, uh, uh-huh, I just kind of, you know, the therapeutic uh-huh, waiting for the rest of the story, uh-huh. And, and then she said, it's my heart. And I put my hand in my coat pocket and I just hold it and it's warming up. And it was so beautiful. It was like even in what seemed to be arid and, you know, desolate and, and betrayed and wounded for a long, long, long time. And then when the invitation comes, the seed wants to sprout. It wants to bloom. It just does. Mysterious. Robert Ardrey, great naturalist, was visiting Louis Leakey, who was the foremost paleontologist of the last century in Africa. And Leakey was showing him around this whole area of um, that part of East Africa. And he said, here, Kenya, look at this flower, this coral-colored flower that looks like a hyacinth, this amazing blossom. And when, when Ardrey looked closely, he saw that it wasn't a flower at all, but it was a blossom. Each part of the blossom was made out of insects, flotted bugs. And Ardrey thought, well, this is, you know, this is uh, evolution. These insects kind of imitate a flower so they won't be eaten by the birds, right? But Leakey smiled and he said, there are no flowers that look like this. <laughs> They're not imitating anything. And he explained that each flower imitated by the bugs, which doesn't exist in nature, um, is made up of a batch of eggs that are laid by the female that includes one bug with green wings, not coral, several with wings of in-between shades. So Audrey said, I looked closely, and at the tip of the insect flower was the single, single green bud. Behind it were a half dozen partially matured blossoms showing only strains of coral, this, these rows of the next kind of bugs. And behind these on the twig crouched the full strength of the bug society with wings of the purest coral to complete this creation and deceive the eyes of the hungry birds. I was speechless, and then Leakey shook the flower, the colony rose and filled the air with its fluttering wings, and then after a time they all returned to their twig. They alighted in no particular order, and for an instant it was alive with the little creatures climbing over each other's shoulders in what seemed like random movement. The movement wasn't random. Soon the twig was still, and there again was the flower. I mean, tell me, come on, you know. The Buddha said there are different kinds of miracles. There's the miracles, you know, that you hear of great yogis who can stop their breath or their heart or walk through walls or things like that. He said those kind. Um, but he said the real miracle is the miracle of awakening, of seeing the miracle that is already here. And then the question is, what helps you to see again? Walking in the mountains, sitting in meditation, listening to the ocean walking along the sea, taking time for stillness in a culture that's forgotten stillness much of the time. What helps you hold your heart like that egg and let it open? What helps your senses open? It's really why people meditate. And it's not that it's that easy. You know, you sit and meditate and it's like looking in the mirror. And if you're frustrated or bored or stressed, the first thing you experience is you're sitting and you become mindful. Oh, mindful of stress. Stress, stress, lots of stress, you know, or whatever. But that's fine. This is from Annie Lamott, my friend. 
I have a tape of a Tibetan nun singing a mantra of compassion over and over for an hour. Eight words repeated over and over, and every line feels different. Each line feels cared about and experienced fully as she is singing it. You never once have the sense she's glancing down at her watch thinking, Jesus Christ, it's only been 15 minutes. <laughs> 45 minutes later, she's still singing each line distinctly word by word until the last word is sung. Mostly things are not that simple and pure with attention to each syllable as life sings itself. But this kind of attention is the prize. And again, it's the invitation of meditation. It, so when you sit mindfully, it's to listen and not be some other place, but to actually be where you are. You know, well, my life, I don't know, it's not that interesting. This is it's what you got. Hanshan, that great, crazy, wonderful Chinese poet of a thousand years ago said, we're just like bugs in a bowl, all day going around, never leaving their bowl. I say that's right, says David Budbill. Every day, climb up the steep sides, slide back over and over again, up and back down. So, sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself, or look around, see your fellow bugs, walk around, say, hey, how you doing? Say, nice bowl. <laughs> I mean, to meditate isn't to have some special experience. They come. If you go on retreat and so forth, you can have those, and they go. They're fabulous. It's great to have nice experiences, but it's not about experience. It's about coming back to mystery, to beginner's mind, to presence, to seeing that what we're looking for is what's here, is who we are. And it's beautiful to watch people on retreats, especially a day retreat, a week retreat, a month. They get quieter and more present. They start to walk like two-year-olds and look at the little sticks on the ground and smile at the trees. And I mean, it's fabulous just to be alive, to really see. Okay, put your hand out and look at it. It's kind of weird hands, you know, if you look at it. I mean, it's your paw, right? One side has these little nails, which are what was left of the, the claws on it, right? It's true. And these lines, and you can wiggle it. No one knows how you can do that. Isn't that amazing? All right, now, and we could stay with it, but now I want you to look at the hand of your neighbor. This is really, now we're getting intimate here, okay? <laughs> Two people, three, doesn't matter. And look at that person's hand and think about all the things, you know, first the consciousness that moves it, but then the things it's touched when it was a baby putting things in its mouth and all the food and the people that it's touched and the, you know, the checks that it's written and the novels that it wanted to write, you know, and the badminton and, and water skiing and volleyball and, you know, and all the food that it cooked. And, and the planting in gardens and all the things that hand has done and it opens and closes and it's amazing. Look at that hand. Isn't that phenomenal? Really, and bizarre. You've got to admit. 
It's just anything you look at for a while. All right, now stay. Now look in the eyes of the person's hand, through that hand, just for a moment. It's not like a big soulful Sufi thing, but you can do it for a moment. And behind those eyes is the consciousness that says to that hand, open or close. Behind those eyes are sorrows and joys and amazement. And behind those eyes is the knowing that sees color and emotion and thoughts. And behind those eyes is a spirit or a light that was born that, that animates this hand and this being. It's mysterious, completely phenomenal. Okay, enough. I saw you can stand. I know that. <laughs> this is Alice Walker. Put it another way. She says, I think it pisses God off if you walk by the color purple in a field somewhere and don't notice it. People think pleasing God is all God cares about. But any fool living in the world can see it's always trying to please us back. Okay. So just in case you need it a little bit clearer, here's a story from Barbara Kingsolver. The story begins with a husband and wife, nomads of the Lori tribe in the mountainous part of western Iran, walking home from a morning's work in their fields. I imagine them content, moving slowly, the husband teasing his wife as she pulls her shawl across the face, and then suddenly they're stopped by the sight of a slender figure hurrying toward them, the teenage girl who was left in charge of the babies. In tears, shawl tightly around her, she runs to meet the parents, tell them in frightened sentences, he's disappeared, she's looked everywhere, he's gone. The girl is the neighbor's daughter who keeps an eye on all the little ones too small to walk to the field but now has to admit wretchedly that their boy has strong enough legs to wander off while her attention was turned to what, another crying child? They refuse to believe her at first. They look in all the usual paces, in the yurt, under the pillow, behind the box where the bowls are, every time expecting the game to end to hear his laugh. But no, he's gone. <sighs> they searched first in their own village, turned every box upside down, turned the neighbors out in a party of panic and reassurance, and as they began to scatter over the rocky outskirts, it grows dark and cold, hopeless. He's nowhere. He's somewhere unsurvivable. A bear, someone says. And everyone says, no, not a bear. Don't even say that. Are you mad? And early before the next light, they're out again. Someone is sent to the next village, and larger parties are organized to comb the stony hills. They venture closer to the caves, and the oak woods of the mountainside. Another nightfall, and some begin to give up, too. And the mother weeps, and the father's mouth becomes a thin line as he finds several men willing to go all the way into the mountains, into the caves. Five miles away, in the name of heaven, the baby's only 16 months old, the mother tells them. He took his first steps in June, a few weeks before midsummer day. He can't have walked that far. Everybody knows this, but still... They go. Their feet scrape the, rock, scrape the rocky soil. Nobody speaks. Then the path comes softer under the oaks. The corky bark of the tree seems kinder than the stones. An omen. The branches hold promise. The Lori people used to make bread from the acorns of these oaks. Their animals feed on the acorns. The trees sustain every life in these mountains. The wild pigs, the bears. Still nobody speaks. At the mouth of the fourth cave they enter. They hear a voice, definitely, a cry, a child, 
Cautiously they look slowly into the darkness, and ominously they smell bare. But the boy is there, crying, alive. They move into the half-light inside the cave and stand still and wait while the smell gets danker and the texture of the stone walls weaves its details into their vision, and then they see the animal. Not a dark hollow in the cave wall as they first thought, but the dark round shape of a thick-furred, quiescent she-bear lying against the wall. And then they see the child. The bear is curled around him, protecting him. I don't know exactly what happened next, but somehow they reached for the child, took him up, praised Allah and this strange mother who had worked his will and swiftly left the cave. He was alive, unscarred, and perfectly well after three days, and well-fed, smelling of milk. The bear was nursing the child. What does it mean? How is it possible that a huge, hungry bear would take a pitifully small, delicate human child to her breast rather than rip him into food? But she was a mammal, a mother. She was lactating, so she must have had young of her own, possibly died so that she was driven by the pure chemistry of maternity to take this small, warm neonate to her belly and hold him there gently. The miracle of Loristan, if you venture onto the information highway with a good search engine and propose Kayan, Iran, Bear, you will find this tiny, tiny remarkable note in the human archive. You might read the story and declare impossible even though many witnesses testify that it is true. Or you could read this story and think of how warm lives are drawn to one another in cold places. Think of the unconquerable force of a mother's love, the fact of the DNA code that we share in its great majority with other mammals. You could think of all that and say, of course, the bear nursed the baby. He was crying from hunger. She had milk. Small wonder. Or the rabbi whose students came to him to say, when do we know that it is first light? As the light is turning and coming back this evening, this night, when can we tell when morning and dawn has come because there are special prayers to say at the first moment of dawn? Is it when you can look in a distance and see tell the difference between a dog and a sheep? No, said the rabbi. Well, is it when you can look up on the hillside and distinguish the olive tree from the oak? No, said the rabbi. Well, is the light come when you can clearly see the lines in your hand? No, said the master. He said, the light has come when some being comes toward you and you can see that they are your brother or sister. Until then, it is still dark. Blessed Sister, Holy Mother, Spirit of the Fountain, Spirit of the Garden, writes T.S. Eliot, teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still, even among these rocks. Yes, there are a lot of troubles and sorrows in the world, but there is some other greater force that is in you, that was born in you, that sustains you, that wants to awaken in you. 
Mark Morford, who writes, Stop thinking the global crisis is all there is, and realize that for every ongoing war and religious outrage and environmental devastation, there are a thousand counterbalancing acts of staggering generosity and humanity and art and beauty happening all over the world right now on a breathtaking scale from flower box to cathedral. Resist the temptation to drown in fatalism, to shake your head and sigh and just throw in the karmic towel and realize that this is the perfect moment to change the energy, to re-envision a re-enchantment of the world, to step right up and crank your personal volume up right when it all seems dark, most dark, and bitter and offensive and acrimonious and conflicted and bilious. Here's your opening. Remember mystery, and finally believe in the seeds you plant. Believe you are part of a groundswell or resistance, a seemingly small but actually very, very large, impending transformative shift, the beginning of something important and potent and unstoppable. So let's just sit for a minute. And whatever is with you as you sit, your tenderness, your tears, your love, your stress and confusion, the beating of your heart and the breath that breathes itself. Make a bow to it all inwardly, this too, and sit as the Buddha the blessed one that you are in the midst of it, midst of this mystery of life. And this is what's asked of you, attention, presence, mystery and compassion. So we're now going to take, in just a minute, a short break. Often we'll take 15 minutes, but tonight it's just going to be enough to stretch or use the restrooms. Um, before we take a break, um, if you've not come before, there's a table in the opposite. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.